Hi everyone, Drew Prod here. Today we have my dear friend Dallas Hartwig, co-creator of the Whole30 Empire, on the podcast talking about his movement to help people bring more real connection into their worlds. He calls this more social, less media. If you've ever felt that you spend way too much time on your phone or social media or comparing yourself to others online, this interview is absolutely for you. Dallas dives deep into this topic and we discuss how to use technology as a tool and not let it rule your life or your mental health or, of course, your brain health. And if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know how passionate I am about community and friendship and why they are so important to our mental health and overall health goals. Dallas and I talk about how to bring more community and more friendship and more connection ultimately into our life in this podcast. I think you're going to really enjoy it. If you've been enjoying this podcast, it would mean the world if you would share it with a friend or pop over to Instagram and send me a message, a DM, introducing yourself. I reply back to everyone and would love to say hi and hear about what you like or if you have any suggestions on future guests on the podcast. Okay, now on to my formal intro for Dallas Hartwig. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perowitz. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. This week's guest is a dear friend of mine, Dallas Hartwig. Dallas Hartwig is the co-founder of the Whole30 program and the co-author of two New York Times bestselling books, It Starts With Food, and the mega bestseller, The Whole30. His newest program, More Social, Less Media, helps people change their relationship with technology and media in order to connect with real life. Dallas is continuously learning how to be a good human. I love that, by the way. <laughs> and currently writing his third book. Dallas, my friend, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Dallas, let's start from you co-wrote this mega bestseller, Whole30, which has been from the last time, and the only reason I pay attention to it is my business partner puts out a book a year, so we're always seeing the stats. Uh, Dr. Hyman, I see Hold30 on the New York Times bestseller list all the time. Talk about the transition from this mega bestseller Hold30 and co-creating that program to focusing on a full-spectrum health. You went from food to full-spectrum health. Take us on that journey of that transition. Sure, sure. So. Um, my first book, uh, it starts with food was the title was, was chosen very carefully because the intention, even back in 2011, um, when I was working on that, the intention was to say food's super important. Food is literally the makeup of our, our, our structure. So everything about our bodies, including our brains, which impact the way we experience the world is made up of the food we eat. So it's clearly important. And we know so many different things about the way different dietary choices impact our experience of the human existence. And so, yeah, food matters. It's where you start. Um, and so then when we worked more intensively on a short-term dietary intervention, the Whole30 program, um, that, was the, that was the tool to give people to say, hey, when you're making food changes, when you're saying, I really want to address this big piece of my nutritional status, this is how you do it with sort of a programmatic um, short-term intervention. And that's to me, like, I'm, I still feel really good about that, that sequencing, that ordering. I think the thing that I went off track with is um, in recognizing the immense power of food to profoundly change people's existence, their quality of life, their mood, their relationships, their sleep, their career status, their creative abilities. I kind of, I say momentarily, but for a few years, overemphasized that piece. Not that it's not important. But it's a um, it's a huge piece, but only one piece. So then, what I've done since then is sort of zoomed out and said, okay, how can I go back to the start? How can I go back to this place where? I, and I sort of reminded myself of my thought process in 2006 and 2008 and 2010, which was food is the most important place to start, and it's only a starting point. So now my kind of perspective is, okay, what else matters here? What other things um, profoundly impact? the way we live and the way we feel um, and the way we can connect with other people, which ultimately is one of the most meaningful experiences of our lives. And um, obviously the connection, and I'll use that word a lot of times here, connection is such a profound piece of that. And that is connection to yourself, 
through self-awareness, connection to the place you're from, connection to other people in profound, deep, vulnerable ways, and also connection to a higher purpose, a higher sense of contribution to something outside yourself. So connection is that thing um, that's really a big piece there. So that was sort of the, you know, it was sort of full circle for me was um, going through food basic tools to uh, get your food program kind of going in the right direction and then a return to the bigger picture. Um, and so it's interesting too, because since, uh, you know, 2008 and 2010, I mean, the Whole30 program was originally released in 2009 and the world's so different now than then. And that's coming up on a decade ago. And man, like it's fundamentally a different world in the way we interact with each other. Hence my more recent focus on the way that we do that because technology in particular smartphones and social media have seismically shifted the way we do that. And it's not shifting in a good, healthy, connective direction. It's shifting in a disintegration, um, isolating direction. So hence the new focus. So with that shift, I always like to help people first start off by identifying the problem because I think people can listen to you and they can understand that conceptually, but sometimes we don't often know how bad it is. So let's talk about that disconnection before we jump into connection and what that means. What is the problem with this disconnection and what impact is it having on us? What, right. what are we noticing? Well, I think, you know, in having conversations with hundreds of people over the past few years on this topic, one of the things that I've sort of just sort of said in conversation and everyone starts nodding immediately. And I was like, something is wrong. Like something is wrong with the way we're doing this. And I don't even need to get more granular or more specific with that. I say something is wrong with the way we're operating or connecting with each other. And everyone's like, yeah, vigorously nodding their head. Um, and so in this, the way I view it is kind of from this, let's take the long view. Let's take the evolutionary perspective and understand what does the human psyche, broadly speaking, what does it expect? What does it need? What do we need on a psycho-emotional standpoint to feel safe and connected? And, um, you know, you think about it from a Maslow's hierarchy of needs perspective, that sort of um, that psychological angle and physical and psychological safety are just barely higher priorities than food, water, and sleep. And in that sense, um, as early humans, our physical and psychological safety came from working together in small groups, um, kind of small tribal groups, uh, to hunt, to find food, to learn things, to share stories, to navigate the world safely. And if we don't have the connection of those small groups that we know intimately, that we share life experiences with um, in a face-to-face hand-to-hand kind of way, we are unable to feel safe in the world. And um, that's the experience of a lot of people in this modern world where we go about our business. We have uh, maybe a partner or a family. Um, maybe we have coworkers. We have close friends. But on a day-in, day-out basis, what we've drifted towards as the world has become more, and I'm using quotey fingers here, civilized, more technological, more modern, is progressively more isolation. And what we know is that loneliness and social isolation is a enormous risk factor for many types of diseases. And the converse of that um, is that having meaningful, long-term, vulnerable, and I'll come back to that word in a minute too, having those types of relationships are one of the most health-promoting features of living well in the modern world. And I think the thing is, is that if it was, if you, if somebody was using all the technology and not having like face-to-face, not having all those connections and they had disconnection, if it was working for them and they just felt better, amazing. But what we're also saying is that people are just not feeling good. They're not feeling good in their body. We've all had those days where we've spent a little bit too much time or a lot too much time on our phone and we actually genuinely just don't feel feel good. We are seeing inputs, whether it be through social media, whether it be through overstimulation in the news, whether it be through overstimulation of just input in general, could even be in the form of work. And it doesn't leave you actually feeling good. It's hard because what we're basically doing with social media is saying to people, whether it's uh, you know someone who has a large social media following or someone who doesn't, 
what we're basically doing is giving people the opportunity to have those highly rewarding, highly stimulating inputs um, in the same way that, uh, you know, sugary junk food would be that highly stimulating input. We're giving people that opportunity in the palm of their hand or in their pocket or in their purse all day, every day. And then we are hoping, and I say we sort of as a society, we are accepting that that convenience and that stimulation um, be accessible to most everyone in the modern world. What we're not doing a good job of is giving people tools to learn how to develop self-awareness and self-regulate in that space. So if we put a handful of candy in your pocket and it was there all the time, it's really, really hard not to eat the candy when you are sad, lonely, angry, bored. Um, and in the space where the modern world is busy and frustrating and lonely sometimes, it's really hard not to reach for that. And I'm not immune to that any more than anybody else. So the process then, as I see it, is developing awareness of why you do what you do what that actually feels like in the same way that the Whole30 program is really targeted at developing awareness of how different foods affect you. Um, the way I'm thinking about it, including the more social, less media program is let's take a moment and actually experience what it feels like. What am I getting from this thing? Why do I like it so much? Why do I get defensive when somebody says I'm doing it too much? Why do I get anxious or jittery or irritable if I forget my phone at home and can't do that thing, you know? Um, why do I freak out if I go to an Airbnb and their Wi-Fi is really slow? Like, what, what's going on behind the scenes? Because it all starts with awareness. So much like uh, Whole30 and the elimination diets and functional medicine, there's sort of like two inputs. There's the removing and then there's the the adding and like in a food nutrition or elimination diet program or in whole 30 you might take out certain foods that could be trigger foods because they could be having an inflammatory effect on people there's some that we know for sure and there's some that are a little bit more personalized like gluten dairy might be more personalized but we know sugar overall is something that's causing challenges so on whole 30 or in starts with food, you might take those things out. So let's take that analogy to what you're talking about here. Let's say people are using social media wiser or they're using it less. Is all of a sudden our life going to be better just from that alone? I think what's important is that we just recognize that's, that's actually what's happening. And so the way the platforms are created is in a way that is designed to keep us on those platforms. Whether it is time on screen from Facebook, it is you know the number of hours you spend scrolling through Instagram per week. Um, they they want us to be on those platforms, and so we have a bit of a tension between what is best for us and what is good for the corporate interest. And you know um, the book uh, Salt, Sugar, Fat addressed the dietary part of that. Um, the way these foods are, or food products are created to draw us back in, to make us want more. And the social media platforms and, and the technological devices more broadly, the media devices more broadly, are specifically carefully engineered to get us to want to use the product more and more and more. And so what we have, and this is straight language from the addiction community, what we have is a lot of wanting without a lot of liking. So we compulsively reach for our phone to scroll through Instagram when we're sitting in our car at the stoplight. But it doesn't actually make us feel better. It, what we find is that we look around the world and we see um, what everyone else is doing. It appears to be that everyone is rich and famous and glamorous and happy. And we're like, I'm slogging through life and I'm lonely when I go home at night and I sometimes cry myself to sleep. Um, and those are real human experiences that we don't see when we look online. So there's a um, a disconnection there. And I think, again, that sort of something is wrong idea is something that really resonates with people because we have that compulsive desire to reach for those devices to fill time when we are bored or lonely or sad. Um, but then it doesn't actually enrich our lives. And so we have the same undernourished or malnourished situation that we do with food where the solution is not to categorically forever remove all things that are stimulating or rewarding foods in the same way if this, the solution is not to stop using social media and consuming you know, media on your digital device altogether. It's a priority of putting more nourishing experiences first. 
and prioritizing those. And those are the real, sometimes messy, sometimes awkward human interactions that occur largely face-to-face. And though that's the nourishment, that's the place where we can find that physical and psychological safety, that sense of connectedness, that rootedness, that tribe feeling like I have my people. And I know, Drew, you do an amazing job in advocating for profound and meaningful friendships. And that's one of the reasons I champion your work so much, Um, because that is one of the things that is the most settling for our nervous systems. And in terms of the way we perceive stress and experience stress in the modern world, um, our perception of safety influences our experience of stress. There's lots of overlapping things going on here. Yeah. And I think that to zoom out and to look at the evolutionary aspects of it, similarly, like in the book, uh, Salt, Sugar, Fat, and in other books, uh, researchers have helped us understand that sugar was super scarce. It was super scarce in our normal environment. My friend Anahat O'Connor recently wrote an article for the New York Times, and it says, is there a perfect diet? And there he reviewed a meta study that was done on hunter-gatherer societies, modern-day hunter-gatherer societies, and pretty much even if some had higher amounts of carbs because they ate primarily roots and some ate more meat and some ate less meat, they all didn't really have any sugar in their diet except for ones that had access to some sort of uh, honey and small right. amounts of berries and other things. And so, that's a pretty like rare and transient thing in the scope of human evolution. Exactly. So the reason that we're so addicted to sugar is that it wasn't in our environment. And so even though we've changed our environment now through modern technology and food processing and other things, and we've put sugar around us, our brain never evolved to the way that it is. So we get a little taste of sugar and it's like, oh my gosh, give me, give me, give me more. And in his book, uh, in his book, uh, Sapiens and um, his other books, uh, Yuval Harari talks about the fact that evolutionary information was actually pretty scarce. If you look at more recent you know, human history, there was censorship, there wasn't free flowing information, it was hard to get information. But if you even look at, as we evolved as human beings and homo sapiens, it was information was so precious, because it would tell us what was going on in the environment. So any little bit of information you can get about other people about the community, it was an advantage. And that was one of the advantages that say that homo sapiens had over the other sapiens that were out there. So it's almost like our brain is wired to find out what's going on because it's an evolutionary uh, defense mechanism. But now we're in a place where exactly like you said, we're walking around with candy in our pocket, knowing that our brain is addicted to sugar. Our brain is going to get addicted to information. You can't even look sometimes, you can't even not look even if you are aware of it because that's what our brain was designed to do. So we're almost in this, interesting experiment and i'd love to just get your thoughts on it we're in this interesting experiment where for the first time we actually have to set intentional boundaries because of the things that are out there that are trying to hijack us oh for sure i mean that's spot on and and not only spot on from sort of a um, historical standpoint for just from sort of an experiential standpoint that's how it feels right we feel like we've been hijacked and, uh, you know, attention, uh, attentional resources. Um, so we talk about the attention economy, really, you know, that um, there's immense consumer value or immense um, monetary value in keeping, getting and keeping people's attention, which is why social media is so good at doing that. It's all very carefully engineered to do that. And so, yes, in the, in the, the ancient world where both sugar and information were both quite scarce, um, we are very hardwired to really pay attention to those things when they are available. Like when sugar is available, you eat it because it's rare and valuable in the same way that um, that information and stimulation, particularly about other humans, um, was incredibly valuable in the ancient past. And so now what we have is a mismatch, what we call an evolutionary mismatch between the supply and the inherent high value demand that is hardwired into our nervous system. Previously, it was impossible to be be addicted to sugar because there wasn't enough sugar available on a regular basis to actually develop and maintain an active addiction. And similarly, there wasn't enough um, visual and informational stimulation available to become compulsive or addictive with that. And now what we basically have is we've thrown open the floodgates 
and we've said, okay, go at it, people. And we just have this dog pile of people, um, virtually everyone in the modern world that has some sort of relationship to highly rewarding, highly stimulating behaviors, whether it is sugar or whether it is scrolling through Instagram, the neurological effect, the, the rewarding pathways are really quite similar, if not identical in some cases. So in the same way that removing highly stimulating foods during the Whole30 program is part of the way to develop awareness about how those foods are affecting you, I make the case that removal, at least short-term removal of those highly stimulating behaviors around audiovisual media is important. I do want to underscore that that sort of willpower-based short-term elimination protocols are incomplete in that they don't put something much more nourishing in place of that. So long-term willpower is not going to be the thing that keeps you going. So you're advocating for, there has to be something even better. That's deeply nourishing that gets us to our true long-term goals that we bring in. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so for example, you know, people who are um, undernourished, underfed, chronically stressed, chronically tired, um, over-exercised, et cetera, very often have sugar cravings as a metabolic response to that chronic stress. And one of the, the best, most successful ways to long-term to settle down and sort of cure sugar cravings is to emphasize maximally nutrient-dense, highly nourishing foods in place of that. You basically just displace the stress-based desire for the stimulation of sugar. And I argue that the experience with social connections is virtually identical. The solution to chronic overconsumption of these highly stimulating media is actually to displace it with the more nourishing, more meaningful, more vulnerable and connective experiences of sharing what's going on in your life, in your real sort of inner world um, with people that you care about. And that's the way that you start to displace and start to notice the emptiness and the, the, the I guess we'll go to so far as say the vapidness of social media because when we are socially undernourished, social media and that kind of stimulation has profound draw for us. But as we develop more meaningful connections very deliberately and slowly and purposefully, the desire to look for attention, validation, connection, and um, just plain raw neurological stimulation starts to fade. Um, and I think that that's the, the piece there is that that concept of nourishment is really important. Mm, beautifully said, you know, there's the component of the impact that, uh, modern day technology and really what we're talking about is input and over input from something that's not contextual. Just like we said, if you have a friend that can truly listen to you, can understand what's going on in your life and support you and show up in a way that you need right now, that input is just constant, constant, constant input in our brains without really any sort of context for what we're genuinely going through as human beings. So we know the health effects. We know how that hijacks our brains. The other thing that I'd share is that, you know, you and I have both had probably some of the bigger projects in our career have come out over the last decade. When you uh, launched Whole30, I was the co-founder um, and uh, co-author of a uh, contributing author of another series of books that are in the same vein uh, called Clean by Alejandro uh, Younger. And we, we were building that company at that time. And many of my friends who have been entrepreneurs or have been doing creative work for, let's say, the, the last 10 years, they've seen a noticeable shift that even 10 years ago, when you sat down to get to work, it was actually a little bit easier in a way. And today, I think that one of the things that people recognize, whether they're an entrepreneur, whether they just have a, have a, um, a, a, a job that they're working on or creative project, we are dealing with so much more distractions. So in addition to the impact uh, that these modern day technologies have when it comes to how we feel, one of the things that I would also argue is that we're just not getting important work done. Oh, absolutely. And so I'd love your <laughs> thoughts on that because you've written two you know, uh, bestsellers and you're working on a book right now, your third book, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, but how is our actual just trying to get the important and meaningful work done uh, impacted with all these inputs that we're dealing with? Well, I think 
um, it, it's, I, I think it's a safe statement to say that we are, as a culture, more distracted and more distractible now than we were a decade ago, broadly speaking. Um, and the frequent interactions and the frequent interruptions, um, for example, you know, you get a, a Facebook notification or a text message notification on your phone, and the way the, the noise, the lighting up the screen, the colors, um, all of those things that draw our attention take us out of the flow of whatever we're currently working on. And when we are habituated to that recurring distraction, not only are we less good at staying in one place and one train of thought and one line of work, um, but it also takes us time to get back into that same place. So the more frequent the distractions and the interruptions are, the less good we are at actually staying on task. So there's a, a lot of lost time and some research suggests it's around 15 or 20 minutes where once we have some sort of interruption, it takes us several minutes to get back into that really good, deep, meaningful work state um, we are, where we are thinking well, where we are sort of um, mentally clear and focused. And if we're having text message notifications come through and being pinged by Facebook and all of these other things that are happening, things coming to us, things that are distracting and interrupting us, the amount of time that we are not actually just trying to find our way out of a distracted state back to a more productive state, we lose hours per day. I think that's not an exaggeration to say that we lose hours per day. So it's one of the reasons why one of the most important changes I think people can make to improve their productivity. And I use productivity really loosely here. Um, it could even mean productivity in terms of, you know, getting your housework done. Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily mean you're working on a big work project. But if you want to get something done that matters to you, radically reducing or limiting the number of ways that you can be interrupted is huge. And for me, that includes um, turning the ringer and all the notifications off of my phone. So the only time my phone screen lights up or makes a noise is if someone calls me on the telephone. I don't get, it doesn't make noise when I get text messages. It doesn't, I don't get um, notifications from Instagram or any other thing. Nothing makes my phone light up give me kind of bright colors and that distractible, um, that distractive experience, except if someone's trying to call me. So, you know, if my, uh, if my son is with um, his uh, caregiver when I'm doing work and she needs to get a hold of me, she can do that. There is a sort of a, a, a backup plan there. But otherwise, I don't allow those distractions to come to me because this is the tension, right? Is that we are being taken advantage of by the way these neurochemical pathways work. Um, such that we are continually pulled back into or back onto those platforms. But that's not good for our psyche. It's not good for our emotional health. It's not good for our career productivity. So we have to kind of form a firewall between us and what the platform wants us to do. And that involves very deliberate parameters. And that's going to be different for every person. There's no sort of moral decision here. There's no correct way to do it. But in my experience, in my own life, and also working with a lot of people over the years, the more distance you have between your own inner world, your own emotional world, and the fewer tendrils, the fewer, maybe tentacles is even a better word, um, of the ability for something in that media device to reach out and come to you the better off you're going to be. So I can go to it, sure. And that doesn't necessarily mean I don't go to it compulsively, but the fewer things that can come to me, the better I'm, the better I'm going to be at that. So I totally agree with you that we are less productive and less focused than we were, let's say, 10 years ago. And so that the, the changing of the way those things can come to us is huge. Absolutely. It's almost like we have to protect our attention so that we don't get stuck in consumption and we actually can focus on creation. You know, my friends yes. like yourself and we have other mutual friends that are out there in the world doing really good work to heal people, to support them, to lift them up. Um, when I see them at their best with social media or any other technology platforms that might be out there, they're using it to share a message, an idea. They're putting out some sort of creation and they're not stuck in in consumption. You know, yeah. you, you talked about some of the boundaries that you put in your life to have a mindful usage 
Um, and similarly, we talked about this idea in Whole30, you're taking things out and you're adding them, adding things in for long-term nourishment. So help us understand, paint a picture for things that we can take away as practical ideas in our life to have uh, healthier boundaries and usage of media and technology. You already shared one, which was the notif notifications and only when people call you does your phone light up and I'm, I'm guessing you have an iPhone and is that like the feature do not disturb or is that a different way that you're turning it on? Um, it, I do have an iPhone. Um, it's not the do not disturb feature. Um, basically what's happened is that um, oh, because I've had my all of those notifications turned off for many years and so what's, what I've sort of done is with that extended um, I guess creating space kind of disentanglement um, I I don't have the sort of phantom ringing experience that a lot of people have, particularly when they first turn off, you know, their, their ringers and everything. People will often report, I thought I heard my phone ring. I thought I heard the notification come through and it didn't, but they're so conditioned to expect that they sometimes hear things that weren't actually there. I'm far enough from it now that I don't have that experience. Um, but uh, I do have an iPhone. It's not the do not disturb feature. What I basically do is I just go through in each of the apps, I actually turn off, like manually turn off all of the notifications. And in the More Social Less Media program, we include ways, step-by-step -step ways to actually do that on both Android and, and iOS platforms. Um, because you have, to, you have to actually deliberately create that firewall. It's not the default setting on the phone. It's not the default setting when you download the app. You have to go and actually manually create that firewall. And once you've done that once, it's there, it doesn't change. Um, but then you have that a little extra breathing room, a little extra space there. I think one of the other things that um, is really valuable for people in creating breathing room um, is noticing and, and really just kind of slowing that whole thing down and noticing what am I looking for right now? When do I do this thing? And that's where um, some of the, again, some of the, the content in more socialist media helps people develop awareness of what they're doing and whether that is through an app that helps you monitor how many hours you spend on your phone, how much screen time you're getting. Um, I know iPhones um, now have the um, screen time information that pops up. Um, ironically enough, the screen time information self generates a report that is delivered to you through notification. So there's this like kind of irony of I'm going to give you a notification about how much time you are on your screen to prompt you to be back on your screen. So there's sort of a, a funny irony there. <laughs> um, but I actually, I saw on, um, you know, the parody news platform, The Onion. Yeah. A while ago, I saw, uh, I saw an Onion article that said, um, Facebook now notifies you when you're not using Facebook. And it was like the picture that went with it was um, a picture of someone holding their phone and a Facebook notification that said, you're not on Facebook right now. And, and I think that that's, I mean, it's, it's a parody news piece, but it's not that far from the truth. And it's I've noticed real. <laughs> it's super real. I, I get, I don't use Facebook hardly at all. Um, and the less I use it, the more emails and notifications Facebook tries to send me to say, Hey, so-and-so tagged you in this post and whatever. And there's all of these different ways to try to lure me back to that platform and having enough distance to be able to notice that's what's actually going on. What's actually happening is Facebook wants me back on Facebook. And there's lots of different ways to get to me to prompt me to do it. They'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so tagged you in this picture. Well, naturally, human curiosity is going to say, oh, I'm in that picture. I need to go look at it. I want to see what's, like, what, what's it about. Who else is there? And so it kind of plays to our natural curiosity. Um, but it's just a way to get us back on the platform. The other thing, too, and I think you know, it's not just changing our own individual behavior. I think that that's the most important place to start. But there's also sort of a a broader kind of more societal way to address this. And in our small groups, whether it's our colleagues at work or our friends, we can start um, gently, lovingly, constructively nudging people um, to create. And I think um, the writer Nir Eyal um, calls them social antibodies just against certain behaviors. So for example, um, you could, uh, in your group of friends, if you're getting together and somebody pulls out their phone kind of mid-conversation purportedly for not something terribly important just because they're bored or they're uncomfortable with the emotionality of the situation and they're looking for a way to exit that uncomfortably vulnerable space, which 
happens all the time. Um, you might ask them, like, is everything okay? And it's sort of a, a gentle, non-confrontational, non-attacking way to say, like, oh, I noticed that you pulled your phone out in the middle of this conversation. Do you want to come back and join us? And I think there's ways that we can do that and sort of, again, in, in a not judgmental, blaming ways, but we can let people know, I've noticed that you've done that. I've noticed that you've stepped away from this human interaction in person to do something on your phone. And the person might say, yeah, I'm just you know, concerned that you know, my kid's not feeling good. He's with a babysitter right now. I'm just checking in. Or they might say, oh, yeah, sorry, you know, whatever. And so there is this kind of grassroots, kind of small group approach um, to making changes there. And that comes, and that's, that's a difficult one because when you step outside of changing your own behavior, which is often enough to provoke people to be a little bit disconcerted and defensive about their behavior, once you step out into gently, lovingly nudging people around you, you're in that dicey space of trying to control other people's behavior. And that's not really the motivation that I think is, is the best motivation to do that. What I think the way to think about that is, how can I create a better world for myself, for future generations, for people around me? And it's my belief and many other people's belief that the more present and open and vulnerable and connected we can be with other humans in our physical presence, the better the world is. And so our then nudge or our request um, that's done with love, that's done with compassion and understanding is with the intention of enriching both of our lives. If Drew, you and I sit down and, and we're having a conversation and you regularly pull your phone out to do whatever it's not going to make our interaction the most meaningful interaction. And I want that connection with you. When we sit down and chat, I want to be there with you and I want you to be there with me. So any, you know, good hearted nudge that I give you to ask you in a loving way, is that the thing you want to be doing right now is with the intention of creating more meaningful connections between you and I. Right. And, you know, I've been in a situation where I had a friend that wasn't super close with, but close enough that it wasn't the first time that I was meeting them. And I would see them pulling their phone and I just gently held their hand and I said, Hey, what, what's on your mind? And yeah. it led to an opening of a whole series of cascading conversations that included their relationship and their career and other stuff. And at the end of the mm. day, being present, both parties get the benefit of it because we would never choose to, you know, I mean, if somebody doesn't completely like somebody and is bored, but even that is like, wow, you can't, you know, being bored is a two way street, right? You have to like be a boring person to be bored in that space. You know, we have um, a men's group a few podcasts ago, we talked about man morning, which is a group of uh, guys in my world that meet every Thursday morning and we go on a hike and we sort of make it a fun thing. We sort of set up rules in advance. It's like to encourage like deeper connection and foster communication, you know, everybody just keep your phones on silent and don't pull nice. your phones out. And if somebody pulls something out, even some of the guys, they razz each other in a good way, in a loving and playful yeah. way of like, yo, this better be, you know, the baby, you know, the, the wifey calling about the baby or this or that. Right. And I think there's ways to do it in advance. It's like, oh my gosh, hey, let's all go over brunch this weekend. By the way, you know, would love if we can all just connect deeper as friends, leave your phone on silent you know, something is important for sure, but let's all just really connect and, and be there with each other. And it's, and people love that. People love that. It almost feels a little bit more like a game. Totally. Totally. Well, and I think, you know, we can go kind of one, one step beyond that in thinking about how modeling that behavior, that sort of mindful media consumption to our children, to the next generation, because kids learn so much more by watching than by listening. And, and they watch, my, my son is um, almost six and he sees everything I do. And something that was actually, you know, asked a question earlier about like, was there a, a seminal experience um, for me? And one of the kind of epiphanies, which felt more like a gut punch um, when my son was, I think he was three. So this would have been about three years ago. Um, he doesn't have his own iPad or, or phone to play with. Our, our media consumption is quite low. Um, in terms of kind of audiovisual stimulation, but he'd asked to play with my phone. He's like, I want to look at pictures. And I was like, no, you don't, you know, you know, you don't play with my phone. And he said, without a hesitation, without missing a beat, he's like, but you do all the time. Mm. And I was like, oh, like, 
maybe I am answering an important work email that I have to do right then. But what he sees in me is me playing on my phone. And so his, his kind of conclusion was the like, why, like, why do you get to mess around on there when, and then, you know, but I don't. And so it prompted a really good discussion. He was only three, but he already could understand that when I was on my phone, I wasn't there with him. And that wrecked me to, to, to feel in my gut, like that, that my three-year-old recognized that I wasn't psychologically, emotionally present with him. And that's radically altered the way I use my phone around him. And that's still a work in progress. I mean, this is three years later and, um, I still sometimes find myself with my phone out answering a text message or, um, you know, answering an email and I'm trying to do it less, but damn, it's hard sometimes, you know? Um, but he is really aware of that and he's really communicative about, and, and, and our language here is very open and he'll say to me sometimes like, dad, I just want some attention right now. And in the same way that you could say to a friend, Hey, I'd, I'd really like you to be gentle with me. I really need, I just really need some compassion right now. Having my son say to me, I just really want your attention right now, like just cuts through any desire to know how many Instagram likes my last post got. Like it just, it's so grounding. So modeling better behavior for the next generation, I think is also really important because this is social media is here to stay. Um, the delivery of stimulating media to us virtually 24-7 and increasingly through augmented and virtual realities, those things are coming and they're not going away. They're going to become more and more and more present in the world. So what we have to do is we have to figure out how do we actually individually and collectively navigate that challenging future such that our lives are better so that we can use the tools instead of being used by the tools. Because as you say, there's so many beautiful things that you get from social media and I've met some of my closest friends through social media and them reaching out. And that's prime, my primary tool and reason that I use social media is to connect with people. And some people say, get on, get online to get offline, you know, try to right. create an opportunity for us to connect. My favorite thing in the world is when listeners of this podcast, I always tell them in the beginning of the episode, like, reach out, send me a DM on Instagram. And I reply to every single one. But I check out their profile. If it's not private, I see what they're up to. I see what they care about, see what they're posting about in the world as much as I can get. My favorite thing in the world is to send them a voice note back because Instagram recently added voice notes. And I just say, Hey, it's Drew. Hey, Bethany, thank you for listening. I just want to say thank you. Uh, It means the world. By the way, if you have any feedback on episodes, I see that you're into this, or I see you're doing this activity at your son's school. And just some element of connection as much as possible because we have that shared experience. I'm interested to know, you know, how do you exist on social media? How do you use it to its highest degree? We've talked about the boundaries of not letting it hijack our attention. So now how do you use it in a way that actually serves you and other people? Well, that's a great question. And I want to just take a moment to, to really applaud the way you do that way you are where you are making a much more personal human connection and not just by using a different medium, by using a voice memo instead of, uh, instead of a text or DM, but, but also to really pause and say, who is this person? There's a human here. Who is this person? This is not a profile. It's not an avatar. There is a person here and pausing to remind yourself of that is a beautiful thing too. So bravo to you. Um, I, in my own world, in my own life, I've, kind of gone a different direction where I'm actually less responsive on social media than I used to be. Um, in years past, I would actually pride myself in responding to all the messages to, you know, doing a similar thing to what you were describing. And to be perfectly honest, perfectly honest, I, I, <laughs> I can't find it in me to continue to do that these days. Um, and that's partly a statement about having spent a lot of time in that online space in years past doing intensive work like that and kind of just being a bit burnt out on that, partly as a function of my own kind of personal journey and progressively quieting and shrinking down my world such that my most of my time, most of my interactions with other people is in person. And so while there can be profound, beautiful, and to your point, new interactions and new connections made through social media and through that, those tools, um, I'm mostly just stepping back from that where if people send me a particularly 
meaningful, vulnerable, personal note, I will take the time to, to, um, to respond, but I don't always do that. And, um, that's largely a function of my own personal headspace where even through my own kind of personal evolution over the last few years, I'm less interested in cultivating new relationships with people online and more interested in deepening the relationships that I already have. And that's no judgment on anyone else's behavior. And it's not saying that's the right way to do it, but that's my experience. And um, so there is this, you know, there is this, this, this paradox um, where, you know, people point out to me all the time, I, I have more socialist media program that I have an Instagram profile for, you know, that I write about on social media. And um, so there is sort of a little bit of a, a bit of an ironic twist there too, because the way the world is, it's, increasingly difficult to deliver ideas and messages and meaningful content to people without using social media. So I've chosen to kind of walk that fine line of still using those tools sparingly, but I'm really bad at playing the game because there are more and more people, more and more online entrepreneurs and authors and speakers and celebrities that are vying for that attention. There are only so many minutes and hours of potential viewing um, that that you can get. And there's a lot of people who want a piece of that pie. And I'm bad at the um, sensationalizing, hey, look over here, look over here, look over here, trying to get people's attention. And so I've taken a little more of a methodical slowing down, stepping back approach and said, look, I'm going to continue to write about what I think is meaningful to share my own experiences that I've been meaning that have been meaningful for me. But honestly, like my social media following has actually shrunk over the last year or two. It's gotten smaller. So it's, it's, a, it's a bad business strategy. Um, and the, the challenge is, you know, I'm writing a, you know, writing a book now where I'm talking about ways to interact in the modern world that are so meaningful, but also publishing deals like the, the amount of money I can get to sell that book to a publisher is partially dependent on how many social media followers I have. So there is this challenge for people who work in that space where we're almost compelled to play up our interactivity online in order to, you know, get a big book deal or in order to, you know, get an affiliate relationship with some product or some, some service. But I can't bring myself to do that. I don't have the will. And again, I want to emphasize like that's no moral judgment here. I simply can't bring myself to play that game where it is very sensationalized and self-promotional and um and in in this the speed at which we are we collectively are producing content and putting it out it's 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 getting faster and so to keep up it feels like you have to produce more high quality posts more sensational things more attention grabbing content and that's exhausting for people who who are kind of content creators like you and I um, it's also, it also means that we are, it's a race to the bottom of who can, who can get people's eyeballs and hold on to them the most. And inevitably, um, that is often accomplished with very sensationalized content. And I don't play that game. So <laughs> I hope, I hope I don't sound, um, don't sound really kind of either condescending or judgmental, but. I am largely opting out of the game where I'm trying to get the maximum number of followers on my social media accounts. And I have fewer followers now than I did last year. And while it doesn't feel awesome for me, I'm like, am I doing something wrong? Am I, am I not writing good stuff anymore? Like, do people not care? While it doesn't feel awesome, I also can sit back and remind myself the number of Instagram followers is not a measure of my worth as a person. It's not a measure of my contribution to the world at large. And it doesn't actually make my very deeply personal world better by having more followers. And so I have to remind myself of that all the time because it is a slippery slope to get sucked back into that world. Um, and it's a, it's a journey that I continue to, to, to grapple with. Um, and I imagine that's not going to change as the world increasingly becomes integrated with more and more technology and media everywhere around us. Um, I don't know. I don't have a perfect answer. That's where I'm at right now. I imagine that will continue to evolve. Yeah. And there's plenty of people out there like uh, my business partner and also your friend, Dr. Hyman. I mean, he doesn't spend any time on social media, you know, right. but he has an important message about food and he's very committed to that and just where he has in his life. 
Uh, he has a team, you know, his sort of format is that he records, um, and even he would probably honestly say that he was getting tired about some about the conversations and content he was putting out there. Naturally, the longer you are in this industry, the more that, of course, you have friends that are going to ask you for favors to promote their book, to help sell their program, whatever it might be. So he said, I want to do a deep, long format podcast that I record every month and a half. We're going to pack two days worth of interviews, and then I'm going to hand that over to the team. They're going to slice and dice those content. He calls them conversations that matter. Nice. And then the team puts it puts it out there. But he never, except unless if a team member is there with him in person, he never goes on Instagram or Twitter or other stuff. But he still has important and meaningful work that he wants to share with people and these conversations that he wants to, to feature. And like that, I guess everybody's just trying to design their life for themselves, right? To right. Figure out what right. makes sense to them. And actually, that's a big part of your work is that it's kind of, again, going back to the whole 30 example, until you've removed all these foods that are trigger foods, that are foods that are inflammatory or spiking your blood sugar or problematic, you don't actually know how good you can feel. So one of the things you've done is you've designed a program, more social, less media, to kind of give people at least a little bit of a framework of like, look, I don't know what's right for you. Right. And I'm not having a judgment on technology. There's a lot of really great stuff. I'm going to share the stuff that's problematic. I'm going to help you understand why I set boundaries. And you're going to have to ultimately come out with your own boundaries. But if you never, it's almost like if you never fast, you don't know how good you can feel after you do it. Or if you never clean out your diet, you never know how it's going to feel. So help us understand the framework that you've created and um, why somebody would want to go down, uh, you know, doing a program like that. Yeah, that's so. That's a that's a good question. Thank you for kind of giving me the chance to kind of plug my stuff here, um, shamelessly. But more socialist media is a four week program um, that is designed to help people recalibrate their relationship with media. And so when I say media, I'm speaking broadly. I'm talking about podcasts, television, movies, um, video games, uh, social media of all sorts. Um, you know, the news, uh, talk radio, all of these different types of highly stimulating, potentially sort of emotive, anxiety-producing things. And, you know, I had to kind of make a judgment call in putting the program together. Like, do I include reading books in there? Do I include listening to music? And I don't know a lot of people who, and it's not to say that some don't do this, but I don't know a lot of people who compulsively have to reach for a book every time they stop their car at the stoplight. I don't know people who... Um, have a problem with listening to music. What's interesting to me is um, we do use music quite often to fill the quiet space, to distract ourselves, to keep ourselves from being um, bored is what people often say. But to me, I interpret that at least from my own experience that um, we prevent ourselves from having that uncomfortable silence with ourselves where we have to kind of just be present with our own thoughts and feelings. And so we fill that space with music and lots of other stimulating media. But the program is designed to change and recalibrate that relationship so that we can prioritize and experience that meaningful human connection, that sense of psychological safety, of connectedness, of having really profound um, relationships. And, and I say profound, not in like we sit down and talk about philosophy, but for profound in the sense that we know someone's got our back, right? And I know that you talk about um, you know, that sharing with friends, like, I've got your back, that sense of I'm on your team, I'm there for you. And that's a really settling, calming message to hear. And I would argue, and I'm sure you would agree, that's a much more settling, calming experience to hear in person, looking someone in the eyes, where they're delivering it with love and compassion, as opposed to a Facebook messenger notification. Um, so there is that that human component. So then the program helps to kind of educate and draw attention to the different ways that media affect us to improve our awareness, because ultimately awareness is everything in this space, that we, when we can recognize why we behave the way we do with media, how it affects us, how we feel, why things are the way they are, and, and what is wrong you know, in that, in that space, then we can start to say, okay, how can I create a better world, a better future, a better experience for me and my family? So then there is the actual elimination diet um, aspect of it. There's a week, a week offline, meaning it's kind of full media blackout, much akin to the elimination aspect of the Whole30 program, where 
if you don't take it out and mindfully reintroduce, whether it's sugary food or it's social media, if you don't eliminate that, it's very, very difficult to actually assess how it's actually affecting you. So then the program does include the elimination aspect of it. And then also the very mindful, careful, systematic reintroduction where you develop awareness. How do, how do these behaviors actually make me feel? And then you can educate yourself and then you can make all of your own decisions because and I, you already said this, how you do it is up to you. Nobody knows what's best for you except for you. And I intend with this program to give people the tool to develop that awareness, to carefully and mindfully personally develop the right plan, the right strategy for them. Um, because I don't know what the right thing is for you, for any individual person. And I've been really proud of some of the um, some of the feedback I've gotten, much of which has really been kind of unsolicited. Um, you know, people will, um, one woman just wrote in and said like, you know, I've, I've, um, you know, I've loved not being attached to my devices. I've loved not dealing with the feelings of emptiness and lack of fulfillment after hours on social media. I've never felt better than I do now with my media boundaries. I read more books. I called more friends. I was more present social gatherings. Um, and she said, uh, I'm reading from a quote here. She said, um, the thoughtful and actionable program is outfitted with heart research, powerful anecdotes, witty writing, and actions to take every day. So whoever Rose is that wrote in um, unprompted, I'm deeply grateful because that's that's why I do this work. That is the the message that makes me feel so good about have a sense of of contribution to people's lives in a very indirect and subtle way. But if I can help more people have that eye opening, joyful experience. Um, that mean that makes me feel good. So that's kind of the the human side on this end, on on my end of it. That's why I built this program. So that's the the nitty gritty there. Yeah, and I think that a framework is great. Anytime, you know, I think that a lot of people listen to anything, anything that they want to get better in, and their question is always like, okay, I believe in this, but like, how do I start? I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure you hear that all the time with food. We hear it all the time with food. It's like, okay, I get all these layers of sophistication. I'm not there yet. Just give me a framework for how to start and give me an idea of what I can experience or what I'm trying to get, you know, out of this component. And I know that, um, you know, we have, we have some mutual friends. Uh, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee comes to mind. We have friends that go very hard on social media and email and writing books and are out there and launches and other stuff. And then they actually make it a fun thing with their followers of saying, okay, Hey everybody for the next, this weekend, I'm doing a digital detox. I'm getting yeah. off of social media completely. I encourage you to do the same. And even one of our, uh, uh, friends in the UK, um, uh, doctor's kitchen, Dr. Rupee, he would have his community share insights of the beautiful things that they, that they saw and they achieved and that they were present to when they were off their phone and they would, he would share that and like work it into their content. So we need to, you know, we need a framework. And I would also encourage anybody who's interested in the more socialist media program, do it with a friend, you know, do it, get a friend, Certainly. get a family member, get a partner, make it a fun thing and experience it together because that's where a lot of that joy can be built in. It's, it's no different than deciding to do the whole 30 program or some other dietary program uh, together uh, with another human being. Well, yeah, no, actually I'll just kind of, there's a little kind of secret little thing here, but um, part of, you know, part of what I want to develop with this more social, less media program is to give people, to give a sense of sort of community and some inertia in society at large. And so if you purchase the program, Upon completion of the program, there's a free code that you can give to someone else that you know that they can do the program for free. So there is this sort of pay it forward, pass it along, let's develop some inertia with this aspect um, for that exact reason. So yes, I want people to do it together. And also, if you found it meaningful, I'd like to facilitate passing along by giving you a free code so that you can share it to somebody else once you've done and you've experienced the transformation yourself. So Dallas, you and I are friends and we uh, have a chance to get together usually one or two times a year. I would love to see you uh, more. We don't live in the same state, but I'm just putting it out there because maybe in 2019, we'll get a chance to see each other more. And every time I'm with you and you start talking about these ideas, because we're so uh, kindred spirits on this subject and I know how important it is, I'm always encouraging you of uh when is this turning into a book? When is this turning into something? And I know you're actually working on that. Do you want to give us any sort of preview of some of the ideas and, and what this is in, and if you're going to be incorporating them into the next book that you're working on? 
Sure, sure. So I am working on a book. Um, it is a, a really different kind of book than my previous two. Um, it's not about more social less media. Um, it's a it's a zoom all the way out, and it's effectively kind of going back to my roots, where you know when I first started looking at health and the human experience, and then you know for a few years zoomed in on food. My perspective was that there's lots of different moving parts that really directly and powerfully impact the way we live and what it feels like, not just in terms of preventing disease, but also in terms of the emotional experience, the sense of, of um, connection to a, a purpose outside of ourselves. And again, I'll kind of um, reference Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that psychological principle where there are um, different things that give people that sense of meaning and profound contribution, something bigger than just having a nice car and a nice house and nice clothes and keeping yourself busy and having lots of social media followers, the, the deeper kind of the longing for something bigger. And so then the book addresses um, both short-term and long-term ways of living well, ways of um, integrating really scientifically sound principles, but basic scientific principles in terms of the way we eat, the way we move and rest, the way that we um, sleep and wake in terms of a circadian rhythm. And, and I, I used to think about just in terms of sleep, are we getting enough sleep? Is it good quality sleep? Um, and now I'm thinking about it much more from how do we normalize our circadian rhythm? And so there's a big chunk on there and actually some really interesting new research on that specifically. And then this is where the, the piece of the connection um, aspect comes in, because what I've noticed and, you know, we have different oscillating patterns, different cycles in our lives. And um, we have the circadian rhythm, the daily pattern. We have this sort of seasonal pattern across the course of the year where we have different desires for types of food, different desires to either be really socially outgoing or be more socially withdrawn and more restful. Um, so there's all of these different uh, oscillating patterns that we've largely flattened and eliminated from the modern world. And part of my book is a call to reintegrate that intuitive lifestyle with these different major features on different timelines. And so I, I'm writing about how to take those four components of uh, food, of moving and resting, of sleeping and waking, and of connecting to ourselves, to our place to our people and to our higher purpose and integrating all of those into that oscillating system on all these different timelines. So in a way, it's my, sounds a little bit um, self-aggrandizing, but it's my treatise on how to live well until you die. It's a, it's a big picture book and um, I'm hammering away on it pretty intensively right now. I'm hoping to have the first draft done in the next few months, which puts it out to the public um, sometime in spring of 2020. Uh, so I'm, I'm going hard at it as much as I can. Yeah, beautiful. Dallas, super appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking to our community about these important subjects that don't often get a lot of attention, but yet they're so ubiquitous that they all, that we all feel them. And we all know, just as you said earlier, like something is wrong. And so yeah. thank you for coming here on the podcast and talking about it. Uh, whether it be social media or the web, if people are curious about finding out more about your work, where can they, uh, where can they find you, brother? So there's a couple of different places. Um, and I think kind of my, my meatiest content is on my website, dallasheartwork.com. Um, and I also put out content, um, thoughts, musings, observations, personal experiences on Instagram at Dallas Hartwig. Um, I don't do as much on Twitter and Facebook anymore. So website and uh, Instagram are the two primary places. And I also have an email newsletter, um, which you can sign up for on the homepage of my website. So those are the places to go. And I'm hoping that the kind of stuff, the kind of um, ideas that people come across in those places will encourage them to slow down, pause, think about what they really want in life, and then take simple action to make it better. Last final question for you. Is there uh, just the way that, you know, sometimes there's some people that might do uh, like a full day fast. There's a friend of mine, his name is uh, Mike. He goes by the name metabolic Mike on Instagram. He has this thing yeah. called the metabolic Mondays where entire Monday, he kind of gets people who are ready in that sort of space. And they all do a fast, uh, together for you. Is there, uh, I know there's the boundaries with your media in general and the long-term sorts of components, but do you have any sort of cadence for every so often, you know, this many weeks or this many days you might just do no, uh, media at, at all? 
Uh, yes, actually, um, there's not a regular cadence for me. What I notice, and and um, my partner's awesome at pointing this out to me. Um, if I start to get a little bit too attached to my phone and my, you know, and my social media, she'll nudge me and say, like, mm, how about a little, how about a little bit less time on that? Or, you know, I'll, I'll mention to her, like, oh, I noticed that you've been on your phone a lot recently. Like, what are you working on? What's going on? And she'll very commonly respond with love and compassion. But she's also noticed that I've been doing the same thing. So um, it's much more of an intuitive, free-flowing um, cadence where if I notice I'm drifting back into old patterns where I am too connected, too um, too distracted with my phone or other media, that's when I'll use the prompt. That's when I'll use the opportunity to take. And at this point, I'm doing a day or two or three um, away from media consumption. And honestly, the more often I do that, the less I miss it when I'm when I'm offline, when I'm gone, because it provides so many beautiful opportunities for me to have those much more enriching human interactions and to have some clear open space to get to know myself a little bit better. And that's been a lot of my experience here too, which has really been surprising for me of how much self-awareness I've been able to develop simply by not being distracted and stimulated all the time. So that's where, that's where I've really um, felt it to be valuable. I love it. Thank you again, Dallas, for being here with us. And we're wishing you all the best in getting this material out there to the world because we definitely need it. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me and let's get together soon. Absolutely, brother. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes especially when it comes to your health.